this is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. talented co-host Jeff Cohen. Hey Len, how you doing? I am doing great Jeff. I'm, I'm uh, just recovering from that trip that we took Saturday to Hinchliffe Stadium in Patterson, New Jersey. Tell us about it Jeff. Oh yeah, it's an old stadium where the Negro League played, the New York Black Yankees and New York Cubans along with other teams. Check us out on baseball and BBQ on our YouTube channel because we have a couple of videos up there about our tour of Hinchliffe Stadium. Jeff, you walk into that stadium. You know, the stadium now, unfortunately, there's graffiti, it's run down, but we were standing where the greats played the game. Yes. It's amazing. The outside of the stadium is definitely, uh, you know, looks more like it would look back then. I hope that they do the work to this stadium because it's going to be incredible. I want to thank, we both want to thank our host, Brian Lapinto. He was fantastic. So, Brian, hope you're listening. We thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Len, who do we have on the show tonight? We have on none other than Joan Ryan, who wrote the book Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Teen Chemistry. If you don't believe in teen chemistry, you are going to believe after this interview. And before we play the interview, give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Tweet us, baseball and, at Baseball and BBQ. We have a YouTube page, Baseball and BBQ. We have an Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecues all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And now is Joan Ryan. Joan Ryan is an award-winning journalist, author, and sports media consultant. Her book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, was named one of the top 100 sports books of all time by Sports Illustrated. Her book, Molina, the story of a father who raised an unlikely baseball dynasty, was a finalist for the 2015 PEN Literary Award. One of the first female sports journalists in the country, she covered everything from the Super Bowl to the World Series to the Olympics and championship fights. Her latest book, Intangibles, Locking the Science and, and Soul of the Team Chemistry, published by Little Brown, and she's a member of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Joan Ryan. Welcome, Thank Joan. You guys. <laughs> Thank you, guys. 
Peter, I, I wish we could be in person and you can give me some barbecue. That that would make it really a great podcast. And we would do it, too. Absolutely. Did you, did you see Jeff's book? It had a lot of little tabs in it. So he's got a lot that he's going to be asking you. Love it. Love it. This is a really great book. I really enjoyed reading it. Actually, to be, to be honest, at first, like, oh, you know, science, blah, blah, blah. But this was really interesting. It was really got nitty gritty. It was really great. Thanks. Yeah, I think in retrospect, the title may not be doing me a lot of favors because I do think people think it's kind of a good for you book and it's going to be dry and, uh, you know, and there's what the title doesn't capture is all the storytelling and that it's really all about people and including ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. How human nature, how we relate to each other in any kind of relationship. So maybe for the paperback, we'll just completely rename it. So that people will read it. <laughs> was it Mike Kruko who gave you the, the title? I, I remember you saying something. No, it was, who gave you the Brandon, title? Brandon Belt. Brandon Belt. And, and the way it came about, and, and Brandon Belt is just a big, goofy first baseman for the Giants and like one of my all-time favorite people and certainly one of my favorite baseball players. And, I, you know, before the game, you know, as a Giants consultant, certainly not now, but it used to be that after BP, you know, you're sitting in the dugout and I would do a blog with him or with one of the players and I would talk to him a lot. And then I was talking to another writer, Andrew Baggerly, and just saying, I cannot get a title for this freaking book, you know, because my original title was The Clubhouse, Unlocking the Science, which I think is a way better title, but Little Brown didn't like it. They think, well, it's too boy, it's too this, it's too, I, I don't know. I, I like I, it. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, does yeah. that kind of capture like, okay, I'm going to take you behind the scenes, behind that door and show you team chemistry and then explain the science of it, you know, which is really what the book is. But we're talking about it, coming up with all these crazy ideas. And we're trying to come up with an idea for the book. And he, you know, I had talked about the book. And he said, well, you know, God, let's think about it. And he sits down and he's brainstorming. He says, you know, it's really like about intangibles. And I'd be like, oh, that's it. Intangibles. And, and Little Brown finally accepted it after rejecting about 10 other suggestions. So, really? so little, so Brandon Belt already thinks he's a genius and now, <laughs> and now he has evidence. Right. <laughs> Joan, before I get started with some really, really hard hitting questions, one thing I have to ask you in the acknowledgements, you, you thank your son. Your son's name is Ryan. Yes. So you named your son Ryan and his last name is Ryan. So he's Ryan Ryan. No, because I'm married to Barry Tompkins. Ah, gotcha. Okay, <laughs> that makes <laughs> I know. So you, kept, so you kept your last name, gotcha. Because it's yeah. like, Ryan, Ryan. <laughs> I know, and there are people who think that, and they said, you know, we really like the name Sirhan Sirhan so much uh -huh. that we thought we would mimic that with Ryan Ryan. <laughs> you know what? I've heard there there are some people that, that do have the first and last name are similar. And so it yeah. would have shocked me. Like some people would say, uh, I, I knew someone, I forget that their, their, it was like, their name was Peter, Peter, but it was like Peter. And then it was like Peter or something. It was something was pronounced <laughs> differently, but okay. So now you've, okay. Now we can ask the hard hitting questions. All right. There you go. So you was, to begin the book, you went back to the 2010 Giants. 
I would I think that's the when when you started really trying to lock in to see what what the chemistry was. And actually, I think no, I'm sorry. It was an '89 uh, World World Series team they went back to, and how they all came together. Right, getting a little. But, but yeah, the '89 team was one of the early baseball teams you know I had covered because um, I was in Florida at the time where there were no professional baseball teams. So that team, you know, I describe it as this you know junk drawer jumble of a team you know with all these factions that really shouldn't have worked and they totally did and those archetypes of the jester and the sage and the enforcer you know in retrospect totally can identify that so i attended their 20th 20 year reunion right that's that right winning, winning the pennant and i'm walking through that uh, that party tent outside the Giants ballpark now, now named Oracle, and listening, and I couldn't wait to see them because I just loved that team and they loved each other and it was just such a cool team to be around. And I'm walking through that tent and and listening to conversations and catching up with them. And literally, you know, you could see it in their eyes, hear it in their voice that they still loved each other. Like there was a sparkle about them when they were just with each other. And on the way home, you know, they, all, all of them, you know, kind of were talking about team chemistry. And on my way home, I started to think about like, you know, it was post Moneyball. Moneyball was, you know, in the news and, and analytics and all the, you know, propeller heads, as Bruce Bochy calls them, in the front offices. And I just thought, you know, I don't know what team chemistry is, but there sure seems to be something going on. And so I set out to find out what that something was. What was team chemistry? Does it really exist? What is it? And then how does it affect performance? Because if it doesn't affect performance, why should anybody even talk about? So that guided me for the next 10 years <laughs> in trying to figure this out. And uh, I am pretty happy with the results that mm-hmm. are in the book. Joan, the book is, the book's fantastic. Just the stories, uh, just the, the interview with Barry Bonds alone is, <laughs> is worth the price of this book. Right. Uh, that was amazing that you, that you got that, what you went through to get the interview, and then, and then the interview <laughs> itself. What was it like to sit down with Barry Bonds? Well, by the time I talked to him, I had gotten to know him a, a, a lot better than I did when I was covering him. And like just about every single human being who has ever covered him as a journalist and a lot of the staff and teammates to a certain extent really had a hard time with them. And, and he was, you know, people say, Oh God, the medium, you know, blew it up too much. What he was like, no, he was, I don't know who listens to this, but he was an asshole. I mean, he was a total jerk. And so I tiptoed around him, like trying to get him to sit down and talk to me and really, and the way the relationship developed was so much about what I was writing in the book, which is the foundation of every relationship in the clubhouse, anywhere, is trust, right? So it took me a year, really, to build up trust with him and, and, and genuine trust. And I came to really like him in his very complicated flawed way as we all are complicated and flawed. And we related a lot. You know, my son has, you know, has had severe learning disabilities and had a traumatic brain injury and 
you know, and, and it turned out Barry Bonds had learning disabilities and his daughter has learning disabilities. So anyway, you know, trust is developed beyond baseball, right? Beyond your work and, and you get there. So by the time he did agree to sit down with me, that trust had been established. And that was the only reason he did sit down with me. And one thing he did tell me is, you know, and, and some of this is like, really, you needed to do that? Is the testing and testing and testing? Is she going to keep coming back? Is she going to like, how important is this to her? And so we finally got to sit down and, and he was totally ready to open up, even though, as I write in that chapter, because he is who he is, he had to continue to tap the brakes and say, you know, I'm doing you a big favor here. Right. <laughs> I usually get paid for these things. Yes. Yes. Right? yes. yes. This, is yes. Worth, this is worth a lot of money. Right. But the truth is, even post that, and I had told him too, and I don't know if I have this in the chapter, but I told him, look, Barry, you will not be blindsided by what's in the book. And in fact, you can read the chapter before it goes to print. And if you have any problems with it, I'm happy to listen. I can't tell you I'm going to change anything, but I'm certainly happy to listen to your feedback. And so we had another whole three hours after the chapter was done of talking about it. And I changed one story and that was it. That he said, you know, that never happened. I said, great, fine. Let's get rid of it. Didn't really need it that much. And, but everything else, he, he has enough self-awareness to know how he behaved and what people thought about him. So, so talk about that, that team between him and, and Jeff Kent. They didn't seem to have a lot of chemistry, but they fed off each other. They, they, they won together. They got to the World Series together. And, but... It seemed like everybody hated this guy. <laughs> right. And the two of them. So you think about, and I say this in, in the book, is that, well, Barry Bonds, I think, was a Bleacher Report, you know, had their 10 worst teammates of all time, right? And Barry Bonds was, I think, number two. And I can't remember who was number one. And then they bring on Jeff Kent, who I think was like number eight. <laughs> and you're thinking, this can't possibly work for team chemistry, Right. And it did, though. And that's why there's a whole chapter on the two of them. It's not really that, oh, God, you know, somebody needs to read more about Barry Bonds. It was like, how could this have possibly worked? Because even though they never won a World Series, they won a lot of games. They did. They were always a good team with the two. They, they finished first or second every single year of those six years they were together. And they couldn't stand each other, as, as we all know. And, you know, there's video that, you know, it was on live TV of them actually having a fist fight in the dugout. And yet, so they, they taught me something. And the, the 70s Yankees and those, you know, swinging A's in, in the 70s also, you know, the 25 players, 25 Cavs teams, they taught me something. That chemistry isn't what we think it is. And in part... Well, certainly for those guys, there are different, at least two different kinds of chemistry that I identified. There's probably a hundred, but two different types. One is the social emotional chemistry, which most human beings need to feel motivated, to feel committed to each other, that they'll run through a wall for each other. And then there's task chemistry, which is about the work itself. And so as much as Kent 
and Bonds didn't like each other. They didn't talk in the clubhouse, anything. On the field, they totally trusted each other. No two guys trusted each other more. And that's in that chapter that each one separately said, there is no one else I'd rather be on the field with than that guy. Because they trusted that they were honing their craft at all times. They were totally prepared. And I think I I say, you know, they would chew through, you know, an old catcher's mitt to win. Mm -hmm. You know, that they would do anything to win. And that made them play hard for each other and be great teammates. They were great teammates. You know, Joan, there's always, you mentioned the Yankees and the A's and those teams. And so there's always arguments for chemistry, against chemistry. I, I don't think anyone could read this book and then and then argue against chemistry, team chemistry. <laughs> um, I think you've proven it so many ways. But, of course, that's always the argument where they say, oh, but look at those Yankee teams. You know, they didn't get along. But you show, again, that it doesn't have to be in the clubhouse, everyone getting along. There's different types of chemistry. Very interesting part of the book. So if anybody's picking this book up and thinking that it's all, you know, you're going to have players that are just kumbaya and, and enjoying themselves together. No, you talk about all the different types of chemistry, the different types of players, that and extremely interesting in this book. Well, you know what's interesting to me, Len, about that is that let's look at the military model, right? So how can soldiers perform at an extraordinarily high level under almost unbearable stress on the battlefield, right? What is driving them? And it ain't, you know, flag and country, you know, God and country and flag. It's not that. That may be the initial I want to commit myself to to defend my country. But when you're out there, every soldier who has ever been in battle will tell you the same thing. I'm fighting for the guy next to me. Mm-hmm. Because you need that motivation close at hand. You can't be, you know, up in the cloud. You know, we got iCloud. You know, that this purpose is up in the cloud. No, when you're, <laughs> when you're out there, you need to love that person next to you. And you know what? Over 3 million years of of evolution, you know, we're tribal people. Our brains have been wired over all that time to, not all of us, but, you know, to be willing to to be committed to your tribe enough that you'd be willing to sacrifice yourself for the tribe. Otherwise, our species would not have survived, right? So all that, you know, we have such big brains compared to our bodies, you know, compared to all the other animals on the planet. And over those three million years, it wasn't the intellect, the wiring for the intellect that was growing bigger. It was the wiring for the social that was growing bigger. That's what kept us, kept us alive. And that is at the base of what team chemistry is, right? And, and chemistry is different from camaraderie and it's different from cohesion. Mm-hmm. Because they're basically a state of being. Chemistry is action. You don't have chemistry unless the performance of your team has been elevated. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but it means that your performance has, has improved. The productivity has improved. And so if, if that doesn't happen, you don't have chemistry. 
And, and it's like, you know, people say, oh, you know, they get chemistry from going out to dinner together. And I theorize that when they're going out to dinner, by the time they're going out to dinner together, they already have the makings of chemistry and the going out to dinner together is the evidence of chemistry, not the cause of it. Mm -hmm. It happens in the clubhouse, in those locker rooms, in the dugout. And then it gets deepened maybe by going out to dinner and hanging out, but it, it's already happening by then. Right. Right. Let's go back to the 2000, early uh, 2010, 12, 14 giants. Actually, let's, let's focus on the 2010 Giants. You talk about Aubrey Huff comes to the team who was a mediocre player with Tampa, comes to the Giants, and, and there's chemistry. There's, uh, they start winning. Talk about that. How did that happen? Well, the reason I wrote that, that chapter, because it wasn't a chapter I wanted to write, because I was, even though I was the media consultant for the team. And, you know, of course I got along with all the players and my job was to, you know, serve those guys, you know, in any way that they needed for media. And, you know, I co-wrote blogs with Aubrey Huff, right. But (laughs) he was not somebody you admired. He was never considered a good teammate wherever he went. He was with Baltimore and he trashes them on the radio in Baltimore saying that I forget what it, you know, a, a podunk town or something like that. And he shows up scrap heat because the giants couldn't find another outfielder slash first baseman who had a bat. He could hit for sure. And he comes in expecting, expecting that, you know, his, his reputation has preceded him, but it was such a young team in 2010. Mm-hmm. You know, for people who remember that team, it was Tim Lincecum and Matt That's Kane cool. and, Madison Bumgarner, you know, it was a fun young team with a couple of leftover veterans. And he comes in and those young guys don't know any better, but he's a veteran. He's got charisma. So they start treating him as as if he's a leader, as if he is one of my archetypes, the sage. And nobody was more surprised than he was. But then he starts behaving as if he is that. The way he operated within that clubhouse was different from any time before. And even though he played another the year with the giants, he wasn't the same guy after right. either. Right. But it, I wrote about it because it so fascinated me how profoundly a culture can reshape a human being that the environment in which they operate in can make them almost a different person and pull them toward the team and toward the shared purpose in a way that had never happened to him before. So when people, you know, when general managers, you know, you try to hire for an archetype or you try to hire for something like you almost can't tell who that person is going to be in that environment because they may be a bit of a different person in that environment for good or, or ill. So that was that team. And of course they go on to win the world series and, you know, nobody can believe it. It was one of the most fun seasons I've ever witnessed. And, um, and for the first time being inside rather than being a journalist on the outside, that's really fun too. (laughs) And getting a world series ring was really fun too. That's nice. (laughs) You write about someone who after reading about him and I knew about him, but 
I actually would like him to be a, a co-host on this podcast because I feel like if he came on, we would just be number one everywhere. And that's supernatural Johnny, Johnny Gomes. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. He goes to a team and they win. <laughs> I mean, and, and not, not a good player. So what is the magic of Johnny Gomes? Yeah, I call him a, a super carrier of chemistry. Mm-hmm. And writing about him, journeyman player, 242 career hitter, you know, can play a decent outfield, can fill in at first in a pinch. But when you look at the course of his career, you know, this pattern emerges and his teams tend to win. And the best example was the 2013 Boston Red Sox, right? So the Boston Red Sox in 2012 weren't very good. They had some issues. And Ben Sherrington had taken over from Theo Epstein, and now he's the general manager. And he's bringing in some high-character guys, but the character was certainly secondary as it should be, right? You're not going to win without talent, so you better have the talent. And then, you know, the chemistry amplifies that, that talent. But anyway, he comes on. And I'll tell you this piece of the story, which, you know, you might remember from the book, is that, you know, they, they reach the World Series. They're going into game four against the Cardinals. And the, the Red Sox are down two games to one. So they have to win game four. Otherwise, they're down three games to one, and the odds are really stacked against them. So John Farrell's the manager at the time. And he posts the lineup, and it goes out on social media. Everybody knows what the lineup is. Johnny Gomes is not in the lineup for, you know, two really good reasons. One is the pitching matchup, right? You know, he, he's a platoon player anyway, so it wasn't his, you know, it wasn't his situation to be out in left field. And number two, he hadn't had a hit in the World Series yet, and I think he was batting like 111 for the postseason. I mean, something really abysmal. But when he's not in the lineup in a game that they really needed to win, the leadership group in that clubhouse, that Red Sox clubhouse, got together, you know, and it's the, you know, Dustin Pedroia and Big Poppy and Jake Peavy and John Lester, and then the list goes on. They get together and like, we need Johnny in the lineup. We play better. And it sounds totally ridiculous. You know, it's, it's like, you know, like witchcraft or something. So they go into John Farrell's office and say, you know, you got to change the lineup. We got to have Johnny Gomes in the lineup. And he looks at them like they got three heads. You know, it's like, number one, my job. Number two, have you looked at his, his numbers, (laughs) you know? And they said, no, you got to put him in. It was like a mutiny, which Mm -hmm. nobody had heard about. And he changes the lineup. And all of a sudden, Johnny Gomes is in left field. Daniel Nava, who was in left field, moves to right. And uh, Shane Victorino comes down with lower back tightness. And sure enough, and this, I will say, is total coincidence, but Johnny Gomes hits a two-run homer to put them ahead by a run and they win by a run, right? And they go on to win the World Series. And, of course, I go to a, you know, a neuroscientist and I said, okay. Like, seriously, like, what is the science behind? I mean, is this total coincidence that all he just all these teams win when he's there and that the the Red Sox came back and won and came back to win the World Series? And he said, well, I said, what's the scientific evidence? He said, why do people doubt what they see in front of them? And this neuroscientist said, 
did the players play better? And I said, well, yeah, okay. Did they win? Well, they did win. That's called evidence. (laughs) 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 And I said, but like neurological evidence. And he just got so exasperated with me. And and he said, you've heard of the placebo effect. And I said, well, yeah. He said, "That's, that's not a psychological thing. That's a physiological phenomenon in which, you know, a doctor tells you this is going to help you, this painkiller is going to, you know, get rid of that, whatever it is. And your brain believes that. And so that part of your brain that deals with pain relief, let's say, starts firing. You take that placebo and your brain is reacting as if you took a real one. Now, it's not going to work for everybody. But it works enough that there is something called a placebo effect. And it's the same thing with performance, right? If you believe almost like a, like a, uh, a token, you know, like a good, if you really believe that Johnny Gomes makes you better, your brain and your body, your physiology responds to that. And you are at another level of readiness, of motivation, of effort, and you think you're going to catch anything that comes within, you know, 60 miles of you, you're catching it because that's, that's how you feel. This, the science was just so interesting. As you can tell, I could talk about it forever. So I'm going to just <laughs> shut up and let you ask some questions. <laughs> well, no, Joan, I, what you're saying about placebo, I don't know if you're a MASH fan at all. But- oh, yeah. Remember that episode where they um, they didn't get their shipment of morphine, or I think it was stolen or something, and they were doing the same thing. I mean, it's you know you hear about it in medicine, and then there was I, I remember there was a soldier you know who who needed something. He's like, Doc, I don't know, I don't think this stuff is working. And he's like, Oh well, I, we're gonna give you another dose, but I don't you know this is really powerful. I don't know if we should. No, Doc, you gotta give me another dose. <laughs> give them another. So it, it's a very real thing, this placebo, but it's amazing that, that it can hold up for that long in a season and that he had this effect on these teams. It's, it's, well, it's remarkable. And he also did other things. I mean, he did talk to everybody. He was in tune right. with what was right. going on. It yeah. wasn't just he didn't have up. to prepare. Right. He didn't have to prepare like Barry Bonds prepared, right? Because right. no matter what he did, his talent was only going to take him so far, right? right. He would go look in at video of a, of a teammate that was struggling at the plate. And he'd come back because they trusted him so much. They knew he always had good intentions for them. He wasn't like, if he told you something, it wasn't because he was trying to pull you down. And so he'd say, look, you know, here, I'm, I'm seeing something different in your swing. Are you doing this or that? And they'd listen to him. So he was like another coach in there. Mm-hmm. And he could talk them up and make them believe in themselves. And everywhere he went, they won. Right? He was the 15 mm-hmm. Royals. He kind of reminded me back in the 80s of, of Lonnie Smith. Because I remember he was on the 80 Phillies. Uh-huh. He wins. He goes to the 82 Cardinals. They win the World Series. He's on the 85 Royals and the World Series, win the World Series. Then he gets to be on the uh, 91-92 Braves. And even though they lost the World Series, they got to the World Series. Everywhere he went, he won. Unbelievable. That would have been another good case study to talk to all the teammates. And that's what I had to do, you know, is talk to Johnny Gomes' teammates and find out, okay, 
you know, what was he, why did you all believe in him so much? Why did he make a difference? And that would be a fascinating study to do on Lonnie Smith. Yeah. To see what they said about him. What did he add? And I remember, yeah. didn't Don Baylor, he also was, I, I just off the top of my head, I think, I think he also would win Might wherever he went. Oh, I'm sorry? Might have been. I mean, he, he's one of the all-time great guys. Yeah, in yeah I'm just trying to think, I mean, of, of somebody else who seemed to, I just remember, I, like I said, I didn't look it up, but, you know, may have won wherever he went. There are guys yeah. like that. And then there are yeah. also guys that somehow, if we could talk about the uh, the super disruptors or whatever, that did not win wherever they went. They, they, they Teams right. ended up losing. Right. right. And frankly, I thought Barry Bonds was a super disruptor. You know, because he had never gone to the World Series. And, you know, anytime we went to the clubhouse, as we talked about before, you know, it's like he was the ultimate super disruptor. You know, you'd walk into that clubhouse and you'd be like, oh, God, get me out of here. But his teammates didn't see him that way. So what I what I discovered or, or theorize is that anybody who's a superstar, almost by definition, because they add so much to elevating the performance of the rest of the team can't be a super disruptor and it's like being Steve Jobs or you know somebody like him that's sort of geniusy in their little niche you know like baseball or you know high tech or whatever it is they're like geniuses and geniuses are often very complex and not necessarily the most socially engaged and empathetic and tuned into other people Um, So they're sort of on their own island of misfit toys, you know, by themselves. And the rest of the team can have chemistry. But the real super disruptors, you know, there's probably two other archetypes, but I don't include them because I just wanted positive archetype, are the malingerer, the guy, you know, like here in the National League West, you know, the malingerer is that player who always seems to have, you know, something aching, you know, when Uh Clayton Kirk was pitching, right? Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I can't face him. And then the other one is the complainer, what they mm-hmm. call in baseball, the clubhouse lawyer. Complainers are always looking for recruits. And so, you know, oh, yeah, I'm getting screwed. I can't believe that kid is playing and I'm not playing. The manager doesn't understand me. And you're getting screwed, too. Do you see what he did to you? And, that, and then the next guy is like, oh, yeah, I'm getting screwed. And all of a sudden, you've got this little, you know, coven of complainers that then does bring the team down. Right. The name of the book is Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. John, why don't you tell us about the, uh, the, se- the seven archetypes that you list in the book? Jester, the sage, could you talk about, talk about those archetypes? Yeah. And so those are personalities that over the course of, you know, my very long career in sports seem to emerge in, on great chemistry teams. And I think it's true like in office places. I think it's true in any kind of organization that when you have great chemistry, you can pick out these type, these personality types. And in fact, I think that the the group kind of manifests them. The group, like nobody can anoint you the Chester or anoint you the enforcer. You emerge as that because that's what the group needs. And so you might be a jester in one group and not be the jester in another because maybe there's already one or it just doesn't work, whatever. So the sage is that veteran guy who's like grandpa, you know, David Ross. With David the Ross, right. Like, right, he was grandpa. 
And so he's the guy that anybody, veteran, kid, whatever, can go up to. He puts his arm around you and just said, tell me what's going on. He's the safe, non-judgmental guy that's going to give you, you know, good advice and make you feel better about yourself. And then the opposite, of course, is the kid who, you know, every group needs the kid. You know, somebody who comes in and is so excited to be there that everything is like blowing his mind and he's just, and it reminds everybody else, oh, that's what I love about this sport. This really is a cool thing to be doing, you know, and he reminds them of that and brings that little energy. The enforcer is really not what we think of as an enforcer. He's not enforcing the other team. Like in basketball, you know, it's not Draymond Green, you know, going right. after the other guy. It's he's enforcing the culture of the team and saying, we don't do it that way here. Or, you know, I haven't seen you in the gym. I haven't seen you be working out what's going on, you know, slacking off. Where were you during BP today? You know, that guy. And he doesn't care if he's annoying and people don't like him. You know, he's doing it because somebody needs to do it. There's the buddy, you know, the nobody eats alone guy. Mm -hmm. If you're a singleton, meaning like you're the only one from your culture or you're the only Southerner or the only, you know, whatever it is, or you're just like kind of a little weird and nobody hangs out with you. The buddy is the one, hey, we're all going to dinner, you know, come on, you're coming, you know, that kind of thing. Or goes up to him, how's things going? How's your dad? You know, who else do I have? The spark plug. So the spark plug is sort of the Hunter Pence, you know, guy who's just in the, in, has great timing in that moment. We need a little extra something and he's always got it. He gets everybody going, but it's not hokey. It's uh-huh. really real. I mean, he really lives it. Yeah, the, yeah, the warrior. And the warrior is sort of the iconic player. You know, it, it, the warrior is Barry Bonds. The warrior is Kevin Durant. The warrior is Derek Jeter. You know, that guy who sort of represents what we all kind of want to be as far as performance goes. Mm -hmm. And you always feel if you have a warrior, an identified warrior, you always have a chance to win. And that's very important to to believe that you always have a chance to win. What I also, you know, what you could take from this book too is these 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 archetypes are also in regular life? I mean, you, it, they could be in your office, they could be wherever in your in your social environment. And as I was reading this, I started thinking about years ago. I was in a fraternity, you know, in college, right? And there was one guy who, with all the pledges, so you start as a pledge, obviously, and he was the one who gave you hell in a lineup. You know, if you didn't know the material or you did something wrong and, oh, did we hate this guy? We hated him, but, but he, we were scared of him and he, we didn't, and you didn't want to fail this guy. So the more he would get on you, the more you would try. And, and I mean, I think we even did a prank where we like ordered all these pizzas, you know, at that time, you know, they didn't have uh, they couldn't tell who was called. And, and, uh, you know, we, we hated this guy. But then once you, you finished pledging and you became brothers of the fraternity, this was the guy that everybody loved. He, was, he got along great with everybody. And you realize this was all an act that he was doing. So he was one role for this group and yes. then he changed. So, 
again, and driven by the same impulse. How am I going to make you the best you can be? Right. And how is that going to serve us as a team? Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not just on teams. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. So it's everywhere. You can read this and, and relate. Oh yeah. Anybody who doesn't relate to this, you know, is not, uh, is just living in a, you know, in, in a cave. <laughs> you know, the, the book is mostly about baseball, but there is a, a chapter in here about the, uh, 96 Olympic uh, women's Olympic team called just yeah, us. Cool. And it was one of the most fascinating chapters I ever read, how this team came together uh, with a really taskmaster of, of a coach and right. uh, they didn't like each other and they, they, they won everything. I know. I thank you for that. I love that chapter. I really love it because number one, it's, it's against type in a way you know, you have an all-female team, this female coach, and it really taught me because I was think I was going to do a whole chapter on the gender differences, and what I learned was that the differences are minuscule. Like if you're an elite athlete, or or you're you know, a, if you're driving to be the best group, best team, best you know, best worker, whether you're male or female. That drive is that drive. And that is, and what gets you motivated is, is basically all the same thing. The biggest difference is, and I write about this, is that women cry a lot. Yeah, like right when that. we're really frustrated or really angry, we cry a lot. And I discover, well, part of it is our hormones. Like we react to things, you know, maybe a little bit more emotionally because of our hormones, but also that our, our tear ducts are more shallow. And so men also, you know, feel those emotions and frustration and anger, and you can almost feel yourself welling up, but it doesn't come spilling over onto your face because you've got a little bit more there to hold them in. So that's, that's part of it. And I know Pat Summit, you know, the, the great late um, University of Tennessee, she would say, okay, you know what? Women cry get over it. It doesn't mean anything. And you just move on. I love, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so glad, uh, Jeff, you, you like that chapter. Yeah. I found it fascinating. I mean, these, these players, they, they really at times didn't hang out together. They, they were in the hotel. They just did their own thing. When they came on the court, nobody better. Nobody better. And going back to how, you know, Oh, they go out to dinner together, you know, they get better. No, they were better. And then they had that night, they were in China, I think. And one of the players, Jennifer Az, puts a, puts a sign out on her door and says, you know, Jen's tea shop, you know, open for business. And she had bought tea and coffee, you know, at one of their stops. And all of a sudden she looks up, every player is in the room. And it was the first time that had ever happened. And, you know, some of the black players were cornrowing some of the white players' hair. And so it was like a slumber party in uh-huh. there. But it was the evidence of their chemistry. It wasn't what created the chemistry. Right. Well, this book is fascinating. We want to thank you very much for your time. Tell us, everybody, where they can get the book. And I know you can get it on Amazon, but if you don't want to... Uh, Support Jeff Bezos' empire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to go. 
Right, right. So you can find intangibles. Uh, what I encourage you to do is to order it from your local bookstore, local independent bookstore. And if you don't have one near you, order it from bookshop.com or IndieBound, I-N-D-I-E Bound.com. And they support all the local independent bookstores. So, and please recommend it to your friends, especially if you have people in business, because, you know, as both of you said, it is like a manual for creating chemistry in your office place and your workplace, even now as everybody's working remotely. Right. Well, definitely will. I mean, I thought about, you know, my boss about this because last year they gave out a book at the end of the year, The Gift. It was called The Energy Buzz and to get everybody. But this would be a good book for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I think because the stories in it, it's it's accessible to anyone, even if you don't care about sports. Right. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, you have Twitter, Facebook, anything like that. Yeah, no, I literally, I mean, I'd love to hear from, from anyone. You know, my email is joanryan1 at gmail.com. You know, if you read the book and if you buy the book, I can send you a signed book plate if you email me your address, a signed personalized book plate. So I'm making it as easy as possible for you to buy this book. <laughs> but you're, you're in the Pandemic Book Club, which uh, our listeners definitely know about. And so we do everything that we possibly can to promote the, the authors. And it's easy to do because every time we have uh, a member of the Pandemic Book Club on, the books have been fantastic. Yeah. And this one is, is no exception. Joan, this is, I, I know this, this, is, this is obviously not your first book. We didn't even get a chance to talk about a book that you're famous for, which is the Little, uh, Girls, Little Girls in Pretty, Pretty Boxes. Yeah. yeah, which which I, I, you know, would love to have you on another time to talk about. But this book is exceptional. So we thank, we you. thank you enough for coming and, on. You know, Joan, one, one last thing. You started this interview saying about the 89 giant team, how they loved each other. And it got me thinking because I read a book recently called After the Miracle by Art Chamsky. And it talked about the 1969 New York Mets, us being on the, the East Coast. And that team is so close 50 years later. Really? Yeah. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. I'll have to get that. What's the name of the book? After the Miracle by Archamsky. Thank you for that. That's a good recommendation for me. I can make reference to that then. Yeah. And thank you for your support of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. So now I was all done, but now Jeff just mentioned that. (laughs) Do you think that, so yeah, you hear about these teams that, um, are very close after like the, you know, the, the 69 Mets that they won a world series. Of course, the 69 Mets did it against all odds. Um, maybe that contributes to, you know, the fact that they're, they're going against everyone, you know, everyone's. So that adds to the chemistry of the team to. Well, it does because think about it. I mean, any time that you share a an extraordinary um, event, an extraordinary experience with other people. I mean, whether it's in battle, like those companies of soldiers stay, you know, in touch. They still love each other all these years later. When you go through something like that, you know 
only those other guys, and I say guys, but I mean men and women, only those other guys really understand what it took to accomplish it. And all those inside jokes, you know, how deeply you understand each other in a way that no one else ever will. And so that, that really bonds, really, really bonds people. I wonder if there's any examples, probably not, I guess, of any teams that, you know, didn't win a championship or they might be, or, or, you know, didn't get as far as they wanted to where, where they had incredible chemistry. They just didn't have the talent, but the chemistry was there. I don't know yeah. if there, there is, there, there might yeah. be someone, but. Well, no, I think there are a lot of like bad teams that have chemistry and people say, well, you know, what difference does chemistry make if, you know, you don't win? It's like, well, you don't necessarily, you know, I, I said this before, you, you don't necessarily win, but you're better than you were. What chemistry does is help you bring the most out of the talent you have and be the best version of your group. And it may be that two years from now, you're going to win, but it's already there. And you also said something very interesting in the book Mm -hmm. that, because some people will say, well, if they had chemistry this year and they won, why didn't they win the next year? And you talk about, and I don't want to, there's so many things in this book. We, we, we've only scratched the surface. <laughs> How they're not the same people. That right. these experiences change them. And, and so just because you have chemistry one year doesn't mean it's automatic for the next year. Even though the players may be the same in name, they're not the same. And that's You're not the same people, especially when you once you've won. And that's why teams that repeat, like the Patriots, like teams that repeat are really extraordinary because once you win, now you are changed by having that experience, right? All of a sudden, you know, everybody wants you on the magazine cover, you know, endorse this, do that. Every, you know, cousin you've ever had is coming out of the woodwork. So you are a changed person by all of that success and what is now expected of you. And there also can be those jealousies, right? Oh, that guy just got that contract or I can't believe, you know, he's making that kind of money or when the season starts, Hey dude, you know, how about focusing a little bit more on playing baseball unless I'm going to, you know, the signings or, or making appearances for Amici's pizza or whatever it is. Right. It, it can really, really change. And you need, obviously, a good manager, a good coach. But what you really need are those t- totally grounded clubhouse locker room leaders. They are the most important influencers on that team. It's not the manager and the, the head coach. It's those locker room leaders. Right. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Thank you again, uh, Joan. We really appreciate your time. Much success with the book. Thank you. This was really a blast, you guys. I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. And with okay. Barbie, thank you, Joan Ryan. You definitely made us believers in team chemistry. And now we have a word from the great folks at BaseballBBQ.com. Our listeners know how well baseball and barbecue go together. Tonight's guests share that philosophy. And anyone who listens to this show knows We are huge fans of the company, Baseball BBQ, and their wonderful grilling tools, clothing, and custom hats. Their creativity seems to be endless. They're always coming up with new items, 
and they have a promotion with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum coming up, which we hope that we had something to do with. So we would love to welcome to the show, back to the show, for a return appearance, Michael Mullen and Brett Mandel, Baseball BBQ. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. All right, so let's, get right, let's get right into it. Ever since we discovered each other, we're, we're huge fans of your, of your items, really have, have told everyone how much your, your products are excellent, they're creative, they make great gifts, they really do, for the barbecuer themselves or to give, whatever. So you guys have some new products coming up. Tell us, tell us what's coming up to Baseball BBQ. Absolutely, just launched this week we have actually incorporated a new cutting board, which is in the shape of a home plate. And we have had this advertised for one day, and we've already sold out of our initial allotment. So we've got our guys at McDougal Bats working very hard to uh, get our next shipment of products done. So, yeah, it's very exciting, very fun, and we thought it would be a great addition to the current lineup of products that we have. That, that's a beautiful cutting board. Thank you. Yeah, it's very similar to the other cutting boards we have. It's a uh, Western maple and a walnut, black walnut accent. So once you get the stain on it, it just really pops. It's a beautiful piece together. I was just saying the only thing is you have to have it shaped like home plate. So you ask your butcher to shape your brisket like a home, like home plate. So it'll really fit perfectly. <laughs> you got to have that really interesting shaped T-bone on there. My, my book never made a brisket shaped like home plate. <laughs> but, but that's going to be the new trend because that's a beautiful cutting board. It really is. It looks thick, you. too. You know? It is. Yeah, uh, it's almost, almost an inch thick. So, yeah, it's very, very heavy, very durable. So it's, it's going to be a great addition for, for us. And then uh, coming out in the next month or so, hopefully uh, beginning middle of November, we have four new grilling items that will be coming out to include with our uh, grill accessories lines. So we'll have tongs, a scraper, a bottle opener, and what is called a pigtail, which is basically a long implement with a hook on the end to be able to turn those giant pieces of meat you got on the grill. So the four additions for the holiday season, uh, I think is going to be huge for us and make a great uh, addition to what we're doing. Nice. Excellent. So, Brett, could you tell us about your association with the, uh, the promotion you have going with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Oh, this is very exciting. So, uh, the Negro Leagues are celebrating their uh, 100th anniversary this year. And to help celebrate, uh, makers, entrepreneurs, artists across the country are, uh, are creating special works, uh, works of art, works of uh, all different media, and uh, donating a portion of the proceeds to support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So uh, we're going to have a line of our tools with Kansas City Monarchs engraved and Philadelphia Stars, New York Black Yankees. So you'll be able to get the, yeah, the official logos uh, embossed right there on our, uh, on our tools. And uh, for everyone you buy, uh, some portion will support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That's an excellent the, cause. The, yeah, it's an excellent cause. The tools are beautiful. They are a work of art. They really are. And anybody who hasn't seen them, Go to baseballbbq.com and take a look at them. And, and then to get anything engraved on them, 
that, to, to have it personalized, such a nice touch. I mean, really, the holidays are coming up. They're not expensive. I mean, I'm not spending anyone's shekels, but for tools like that, I really think they're very competitively priced. I think they're fantastic. So we have, we have told our listeners time and time again, we will continue to preach it. Gotta go check out baseballbbq.com. Shirts, hats. I mean, you guys are just like every day. You come, what do you have dreams about the things? You, you think about it in the shower. I mean, where are you coming up with these ideas? We, we have a lot of fun with conversations. Trust me, there are a bunch of ideas that end up on the cutting room floor, but uh, a lot of good ones come, come through. Back in, I guess, just before Father's Day, I believe. And you, how's business going? It's great. Yeah, we, we started, uh, we opened up the doors basically on June 4th, uh, right before Father's Day, which was huge for us. And then it's been going up ever since. And so we're really excited now rolling in the holiday and the playoffs here and obviously launching the new products and really spreading the word. So I think with the, you know, we're very fortunate to get to do this with the New Leagues Baseball Museum and, you know, promoting what they're doing and, and helping in that cause. So I think not only is it a great way to, you know, share what we're doing, but to help that organization as well. So it's really been positive for the past three months, three to four months of everything that we have going on. We're just really excited about the future. Excellent. And I see this promotion with the Negro Leagues going from October 4th through the 10th. So please, everybody go out and check out the website, purchase a couple of these great tools, get get a couple of hats. And support uh, these guys, support the Negro Leagues Museum. It's a great cause. We, we can't thank you enough for coming on. We will continue to, to promote you guys because we really believe in what you're selling. Baseball and barbecue together, you guys figured out a way to combine it just like we did. We, we think you're great. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your feedback. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, fellas. Thank you so much. Thank you to Brett and Michael. Check them out at BaseballBBQ.com for all their line of barbecue accessories. Len, that's it, right? Episode 71, it's in the books. See you next time. See ya.